What is the perfect story? Does it exist? Is there a tangible formula? Has the perfect story ever been told? And if so, are we simply trying to retell the story over and over? This podcast is called The Midnight Myth, and somewhere between the black of night and the break of dawn, there is a story, and it's perfect. My name is Derek Jones. And my name is Laurel Hostack. Welcome to The Midnight Myth. Welcome back to the Midnight Myth, everybody's favorite philosophy, history, mythology, pop culture podcast. I am very excited to be back here with another Midnight Myth episode. We have a really special episode for you, dear Midnight Myth listeners. Um, a little bit different from some of the molds that we've done recently. We've done a lot of like case studies. We've done a lot of deep dives into movies or into characters. This one's going to be a little more open-ended, a little more free, a little looser, but not less substantive in its style. It's almost going to be like, like I'm wandering around the galaxy in the care of a very special green little child, and I don't really know how to take care of this child because no one really took care of me except for my hard heart and my warrior ways. I feel like this episode's very much like that. Are you picking up what I'm putting down, Laurel? Yeah, I think I'm picking up what you're putting down. If you've been following us on social media, which you all should be at this point, you know what we're going to talk about. We are here with a Mandalorian Season 1 breakdown analysis. The Mandalorian and Baby Yoda, the smash hit phenomenon on the Disney Plus streaming service. Uh, I can't wait to explore what this series means, to mine all of the symbolism in it. I am stupendously excited. How are you feeling, Laurel? I am feeling great. I'm also very excited. Uh, You know, if you've been watching The Mandalorian, if you've been uh, kind of plugged into the Star Wars universe in the last couple of months, you've probably seen plenty of conversations about the implications of use of the force or of this particular weapon or of this particular style of combat on the lore of Star Wars. And I think we're going to engage with some of that in our conversation tonight, but we're hopefully going to bring you something that's a little bit uh, of a different dimension uh, rather than engaging directly with exclusively the Star Wars galaxy lore. We're going to try and make connections in the real world too. So we're going to talk, as we always do, about history and mythology and philosophy in our world and how those things influence Star Wars and how Star Wars interacts with those. Yep, totally, 100%. So consider this your Mandalorian Season 1 spoiler wall. From here on in, everything Season 1 of Mandalorian will be spoiled. I guess technically I already spoiled a little bit with Baby Yoda, 
But let's face it, if you don't know who Baby Yoda is, you're just not on the internet anymore. You're so. just not on the internet. You, yeah, so I, I, I don't know how, how you're listening to the how podcast. How did you find this podcast? Yeah, if you're not on the internet, how did you find us? Please tweet at us. Let us know. Oh, you're not on the internet to tell us. I, I can't help you. I really can't. All right, so before we roll up our sleeves and really get to work on this interesting, weird, spaghetti, western, bounty, hunter, intergalactic force using force sensitive the empire's gone but wait it's still their narrative laurel a lot of people have been asking me sure would be great to give a review or say hi to the midnight myth i just don't know how to do it how can they do it uh i'll tell you how they can do it there's a lot of ways so if you wanted to get in touch with us or follow our latest updates the best place to do so is twitter we're on twitter at the midnight myth uh, we're also on Facebook and Instagram at Midnight Myth Podcast, and you can always reach out to us on any of those platforms. We would love to hear from you. If you are so inclined and you enjoy the show, please do leave us a rating and or a review, especially on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen, because that is the most impact you can have for this podcast. To just say a few nice words about what you like will really help other people find us uh, and decide if we're right for them. So I hope you will take a few minutes and do that. Um, otherwise, if you were looking for other ways to support us, we do have a Patreon. And this episode, I want to call out our newest Patreon member, our newest patron, M, uh, dear friend of the pod. We are so grateful to have you. And you're probably listening to this six months in the future when The Mandalorian comes out in the UK. But thank you so much for supporting us. And thank you to our other patrons as well, Heath, Mary Liz, Beth, and Flavio. We love every single one of you. We are so grateful for your support. If you are not a patron yet and you would like to give us a little bit of money, you can do as little as you, you could do as little of it as a dollar a month to support us on Patreon. Uh, and that gets you uh, access to special perks and discounts and shout outs on the pod like you just heard. So if you would like to help us out, please consider doing that. You can find the link to our Patreon on our website, midnightmyth.com. Uh, also on our website, you'll find a link to our merch store uh, if you wanted to sport a Midnight Myth t-shirt or tote bag or anything of that sort just to show off how much you love the Midnight Myth, we would love to have your support there. Wonderful. On with the show. So Mandalorian came out 2019. It was the marquee show of the Disney Plus streaming service. I think it's safe to say by all of the chatter online that it was a smash hit. However, we don't know ratings in a traditional sense for a streaming service yet, but you can guarantee a season two of Mandalorian is going to come. Um, it features the main character, uh, the Mandalorian. Now, there's eight episodes in it, so we're not going to recap each. But the general gist of the show is the Mandalorians are an ancient warrior society. They are known by their armor, and they were first developed in the character Boba Fett. So every Mandalorian has a similar armor set where they have the sort of Boba Fettian style helmet that has slits for the eyes and a slit going straight down the face. They tend to have rocket packs. They fight with blaster guns. Uh, sometimes they have rope mechanisms. They have lots of cool thermal detonators. And they're just all around badass. The show kind of uh, establishes and expands the lore that the Mandalorians, having been decimated by the Empire, are living in an underground society where they only allow themselves to come out one at a time. And they do things like bounty hunters and their mercenaries 
as a way to get revenue. The main character, the Mandalorian, gets hired to retrieve Baby Yoda. When he finds Baby Yoda, he's reminded that he himself was once a quote-unquote foundling, meaning that he was adopted into the Mandalorians, and he cannot sell the Baby Yoda to the Imperials or the leftover Imperial warlords who presumably want him for some nefarious purpose. Mandalorian and Baby Yoda go on a whole series of spaghetti Western-style adventures from planet to planet, helping people and getting a little bit of money along the way, culminating back to the main bounty hunter planet where it starts, where they meet a character named Moth Gideon, who's an Imperial warlord. By the way, this takes place after the Empire has been destroyed, so it's after Return of the Jedi, but before the new um, The Force Awakens, Force Awakens pardon yeah. me, so there's no First Order yet. And a great battle ensues where Mandalorian gets his sigil, he gets bonded to Baby Yoda as his clan, and he gets his mission to take care of Baby Yoda as if it were his as if it were his own child until he can reunite Baby Yoda with his own species. I say Baby Yoda, that is just the term everyone has given this character as it does not have a name, but it is of the same race or species of Yoda and is highly force sensitive and we see it do things like lift a space rhinoceros, stop a flamethrower and even force choke someone. And force heal. So we see Baby Yoda exhibiting uh, incredible force powers that we usually don't even expect from well-trained Jedi. And this seems to be a you know 50-year-old infant who has this innate ability to use those powers we really haven't seen. Yeah, absolutely. Um, totally. I would. I just want to go out and say a few basic reflections on The Mandalorian. It's clear that the timing, they released it right before Rise of Skywalker, and as the new show to promote the Disney Plus streaming service, it's clear to me that Disney sees the Mandalorian as a piece to both link into the broader Star Wars universe and Star Wars media, such as comics, TV, and ultimately movies, connecting to those, as well as uh, being the sort of marketing push for the Disney Plus platform. So my first question in the reflection on what the show represents to Star Wars and to Disney Plus, do you think it was a success? I think overall, yes, it was a success. Um, as far as my like general opinions on the show, I, like many people, was very stoked and very excited in the lead up to The Mandalorian, the first live action uh, television series in the Star Wars universe. Uh, was just super exciting to me and to get a little more expansion on the complex mythology of the Mandalorians in a sort of cinematic style uh, presentation was really enticing. Um, and I do think that while for me, there were a few episodes in the middle of the season where I really was kind of like, where are we going with this? Um, the, the general impression that the show left on me was that it was extremely high production value, extremely um, thoughtful and uh, slotted into the Star Wars universe in a way that sort of expanded our understanding of what the galaxy looks like, had some very good character development, and overall did leave me wanting more. So I feel very good about this season. Um, Baby Yoda, I, I would I would care for him. I would like... I would run through fire to save Baby Yoda, and I think most people on the internet feel the same way. Um, but I do feel very good about these characters at the end of it, um, and that 
it represents uh, some real new horizons for the Star Wars universe. I think we'll get into a, a few things tonight about uh, where it pulls its influences from, uh, but I think it uh, it has paved the way for new possibilities. Yeah, I think it bookends. So the very first few episodes were really engaging and engrossing. And then the last few were really amazing and engaging and engrossing. And part of where I, I lost a little bit of focus, and I think the show lost a little bit of focus, are in these sort of isolated adventures that slotted in the middle. Some of them didn't really land as well thematically, and I didn't think were as well fleshed out. But the first few episodes, the last few episodes, I thought were a roller coaster and were really, really cool. Agreed. I mean, yeah. just little things like having a R2-D2 droid with arms and legs operating as a river sticks guide. Yeah. Amazing. As a ferryman. Absolutely. On a lava river, ushering them through the threshold to the other side, which was covered with enemies. To the idea of IG, uh, I almost said IG-88, that's the droid from Empire Strikes Back. What I mean to say is IG-11 from hunter droid to nursery droid. Really amazing. Uh, and then the programmer, Quill, I have spoken, was this interesting mythic mentor character helping to usher uh, the Mandalorian around, helping him to remind him that being a mercenary is just one way to be. It's not the ultimate way to be. And then learning more about who the Mandalorians as a species are, what they have gone through, what our main character, the Mandalorian, has gone through, and how he has come to have compassion for orphans, and because he has compassion for orphans and a love for the Mandalorian creed, he ends up bonding to Baby Yoda and essentially pledging his life to protect Baby Yoda at all costs, which is interesting. In the finale, he's already ready to lay down his life for Baby Yoda before he gets his sigil and Baby Yoda becomes his official clanmate. That happens while they're in the, uh, con the cantina, and they're in the fight, and then he gets shot in the back of the head, he being the Mandalorian, and he sits there and says, let me die as long as that this foundling can live. I'm content to die a warrior's death. And it's because he's willing to lay down his life for Baby Yoda that he ends up getting his sigil, and he ends up becoming clan-bounded to Baby Yoda. Absolutely. Uh, and yeah, like you said, uh, Mando has this tendency and this extra special sensitivity to the plight of orphans and foundlings because of his own backstory, which is gently revealed over the course of the eight episodes. And we get a really good picture of it uh, in episode eight. Uh, but he also feels a, uh, a personal and particular connection to this orphan, this foundling. It's not just any orphan or foundling. It's the one that's been on his adventures with him. It's the one that teamed up with him to fight the Mudhorn. And that's why they get the signet that they get of the Mudhorn. So uh, there is a very intimate connection that's been forged between these two from uh, the earliest episodes uh, that is not just, you know, I was a foundling, so I'll take care of any foundling. They had to come through uh, these sort of heroic trials together. Sure. I totally agree with that. Let's, let's start our deeper analysis with the character, the Mandalorian. 
if there's one thing I hear being kicked around online about this show, it's that it is a Western. So I want to ask you a few questions. One, is it a Western? Most important question. But before we get to that, what does it mean to filter the way we perceive this character as a lone gunman in a Western sense? And lastly, what does it even mean to call a thing a Western to begin with? How can we understand this genre that we see this character in as a Western? And I want to know what your thoughts are on that. Yeah, so let's start with uh, that final question there about what really is a Western? Where does this genre come from? Uh, You'll mostly think about the Western as a predominantly American phenomenon, and there is truth to that, but it's not the whole truth. Um, The Western tradition... Uh, while the American Film Institute will define it as uh, a genre of films set in the American West that embodies the spirit, the struggle, and the demise of the new frontier, uh, you'll see numerous Westerns and uh, subgenres of that film genre that take us out of those uh, rigid definitions and just lift the conventions out of it. Uh, there was a, a pretty established Uh, fiction tradition around uh, stories of the frontier in the American West in the 19th century, right around the time that uh, the kind of cowboy era was really in its heyday. Uh, And if you want to know more about sort of the history of cowboys and the frontier in the American West, we did talk about this on our uh, Westworld podcast, but not necessarily about the uh, cinematic tradition. But movies made as quote-unquote westerns have been around since at least the silent era and they were being made in america and they were being made in europe ever since uh the late 19th century we really think about the classical western as taking place or being made during uh its its golden age which was about the 40s and 50s uh mid 20th century and those movies were set in the american west usually featured a stalwart cowboy or sheriff or lawman of some kind, uh, and featured uh, the new frontier and the the struggle between right and wrong. These were usually pretty black and white morals. There were black hats and there were white hats. And the black hats were cattle rustlers who were maybe uh, harassing some homesteaders, or they were... Uh, bandits coming through town, or some very clear-cut villains. And justice was doled out not through the courtroom, but through a personal sense of frontier justice. Uh, The heroes were led by an inner code of honor rather than necessarily the law, and it was pretty cut and dry. But after the 40s and 50s, uh, we start to see the post-Western emerge, Uh, and the revisionist Western. We start to see the morals get a little more complicated. We start to see things get a little bit more gray. And even some of the classical Western directors, like John Ford, was making uh, new Westerns in the 60s that featured more complex anti-heroes, like The Searchers, which is usually considered like the greatest Western ever made, features a very racist John Wayne. Uh, and later that'll give way to things like Unforgiven. Hold on, just question there. When you say a very racist racist John Wayne, are you saying John Wayne the man was very John, racist? No, the, or character, the character John Wayne played? was playing was okay. very racist, and it was critiquing that 
sort of energy that had been swept under the rug in more classical westerns. So the genre started to complicate itself. Uh, one of the directors that was contributing to the complication and the quote-unquote demythologizing of the western, of the white hats and the black hats, was a guy named Sergio Leone. Uh, the sort of golden child of the spaghetti western. He wasn't the first spaghetti western director, but he's the best known, and he helped this subgenre take off. They're called spaghetti westerns because they were produced and directed by Italian filmmakers, and they were usually shot on location in Italy and Spain, in locations that looked a little bit like Monument Valley in Utah or other places in the American West and Southwest. Um, and Sergio Leone is best known for the Dollars trilogy, so um, A Fistful of Dollars for a few dollars more in The Good, the Bad, and the Ugly. And while we're talking about The Mandalorian, uh, the other big name associated with Sergio Leone is Ennio Morricone, the, uh, the composer. And The Mandalorian's music is deeply indebted to the music that Morricone was writing, which was so iconic, especially the main theme from The Good, The Bad, and The Ugly. So definitely listen for those connections there. Um, but this trilogy starred Clint Eastwood as the man with no name. The Mandalorian is a man with no name. You know, a lone gunman who walks into town, has a purpose, is laconic, is a man of few words, and is looking to fill his pocket is looking out for his own interests, but has this very complicated morality. Um, you know, an interesting thing that I learned when kind of looking into the influence of the Western on The Mandalorian, and so much of it is explicit. There's almost too many references to classic Westerns to, to point them out over the course of a few hours, but um, the Dollars trilogy is... I would say inspired, but it's a direct ripoff of uh, Akira Kurosawa's Yojimbo, uh, so much so that Kurosawa ended up suing and winning against Sergio Leone. But John Favreau, the showrunner for The Mandalorian, had Pedro Pascal watch Yojimbo uh, and the Dollars trilogy to get inspiration for this character. So it's all being kind of worked in together to create this complicated morality around a faceless, nameless character. So do me a favor. When you say things like the complicated morality, I would like to know exactly what you mean by complicated morality. Because if we're going to get into the moral philosophy of the Western hero, which I think is where this conversation is going, and you say by definition that it's complicated, things that just pop into my mind all morality is inherently complicated. What makes this more complicated than others? In fact, if morality was easy, it wouldn't exist. We wouldn't need moral philosophy if knowing what the right thing to do at all times was simple and easy. In fact, it's because it's complicated that there's a philosophical discipline to it. So when you say that it's a complicated morality, I don't think you mean to say that it is inherently more complicated than other moral philosophy. So I'm curious when you say how the Western hero has a complicated morality, what specifically do you mean by that? And what can we pull from the Mandalorian as evidence? So, yeah, so I'm glad that you bring that up because uh, if, if we look at it like this, 
Um, the complicated morality that I'm talking about is in a stark contrast to the classical Western. So most of the work that was being made up to and into the Golden Age, so works by John Ford and Howard Hawks, uh, you know, works like Shane, uh, works like High Noon, feature more clear-cut morals, more obvious good and bad. The bad guys and the good guys do not look alike, they do not wear the same color, and they do not fight for the same things. It's not dissimilar from the Skywalker saga of Star Wars. The good guys wear white and the bad guys wear black. And it is very clear that the empire is bad and the rebellion is good. And it takes some time before we start to complicate that and see our heroes and our villains' motivations moving closer together or we see our heroes looking more like our villains and uh, uh, vice versa. So it takes, uh, it takes time and it takes concerted effort to take uh, a genre that is reliant on clear, uh, stark contrast between good and bad and transform that into uh, a genre that embraces ambiguity. So that's really what I'm talking about with complicated morals. You know, our heroes stop being the sheriff and start trending toward being outlaws themselves, particularly bounty hunters. So it's just a, a slight trend there away from the easy uh, right and wrong. Yeah, so the narratively speaking, the original Western as we know it signaled to the audience very clearly, very easily, who was the good guy, who was the bad guy, and it, the conflict of the movie is resolved when the good guy triumphs, e.g., we know Obi-Wan Kenobi is a hero because we see him save Luke Skywalker. We see him sacrifice himself for Darth Vader. And we know Vader's the bad guy because we see him literally going into a place that's all white and torturing people. Yeah. And he's dressed in black with an evil penis-looking helmet. Exactly. And then we get to a point where it gets a little more complicated. So it's not that it addresses any morality more in a more complicated way, but rather the dividing line between who the good guy and the bad guy is gets blurry. Yeah. It gets messier. As the genre gets more mature, it asks the question, hey, if you're willing to resolve your conflicts through force of violence, what are you saying about power? How should we trust that this lone sheriff really is in the right? What if they're not? Yeah, and it's starting to acknowledge things that the classical Western left unsaid or left, um, you know... It, left wanting nuance. So uh, one thing to point out is the relationship of uh, the, the, the American and the, um, the American frontiersman and the Native American in the classical Western is very black and white. It's like those are the people who need to be conquered where the revisionist Western and the spaghetti Western and uh, you know more permutations thereof will start to revise those aspects and be like, hey, there's actually some nuance here. There are maybe some things we have not acknowledged, like a great deal of bigotry, and it's time for us to expand our worldview and understand that there is a perspective on all sides of this coin. And that I think is something that the Mandalorian is doing too with the Star Wars galaxy. While it is very clearly alluding to both classical and uh, revisionist Westerns, it is trying to bring new perspective to a galaxy that has usually been 
um, at least in the, the sort of cinematic endeavor, uh, very, uh, very single-minded. Yeah, I hear what you're saying there. Our first uh, time that we interact with the main character is we see him, the Mandalorian, walk into a cantina, beat two people up, and we think it's to defend someone from being bullied. And the person being bullied is actually his prey, yeah. who he freezes in carbonite and sells. Right out of the gate, that signals to us, hey, this person is violent. This person's not defending the the weak. This person's actually preying on this weak person and making money based upon that. And that tells us that there's a particular messiness to bounty hunting that we don't think of, and this is no disrespect to the bounty hunters that might be listening, we don't think of bounty hunting as a noble profession. Boba Fett in Empire Strikes Back and Return of the Jedi is a bad guy. Why? Because he sells Han Solo to Jabba the Hutt. We expect, we are signaled to this Boba Fett-looking character in The Mandalorian to be a bad person, and yet when he has the opportunity to either sell an innocent child, albeit a 50-year-old child, or protect it, he chooses to protect it. So we see someone that's willing to sell other human lives to whoever for the highest bidder, who is also willing to lay down their life to save an innocent child, and in this way, it's not as clear who's the good guys and the bad guys are in this. And that's the journey of the Mandalorian, which is how does a Clint Eastwood type come to care for a small child? Yeah. And what is the Clint Eastwood type anyway? Emotionally stoic, using uh, violence to settle disputes at all costs, uh, hyper-masculine in both attitude, dress, and makeup, and the way that they uh, approach all issues and problems, which is punch first, ask questions later, who then has this exterior broken down by falling in love with another character, not a woman, but a baby Yoda. Yeah, well, and it should be noted that there are um, some, the theme of uh, that sort of laconic, uh, stalwart, morally complicated figure becoming a parent is not new to the Western too. There are some very notable examples of Westerns that have dealt with those themes. Um, one of those, John Ford made a film called Three Godfathers about three outlaws who come across an orphaned baby and have to care for it uh, and who are morally transformed by the act of caring for this child. Uh, there's also the classic George Stevens film, uh, Shane, which features uh, this cowboy figure coming into town and becoming a sort of uh, surrogate father figure for uh, the young son of a family of homesteaders. So it is certainly something that the genre has uh, been interested in before, this sort of uh, masculine tension that comes with fatherhood, whether that's literal fatherhood or symbolic fatherhood, which I think is very interesting. Yep, Totally. So I think we can say definitively that The Mandalorian, both the character and the makeup of the show, is utilizing Western tropes. I don't think we can call it in a strict sense, in a more dogmatic sense, a Western, because it's not in the American West, but man, it could be. You could plop this entire narrative with a cowboy roaming around with a psychic baby, 
that's able to move things with their mind and it would still, all of it would still work. You yeah. Know? Well, and there's a lengthy tradition around the space Western too, among the dozens of subgenres of the Western. Uh, one of those takes place in space. Think about Firefly. Um, think about even the way that Star Trek was originally pitched was as a Western in space. And they call it the final frontier in the opening of every episode. So it is something that, uh, you know, the, the conventions of the Western have always felt kind of at home in the distant reaches of space because it's concerned with, okay, when we get out of the sort of central area where uh, law and order prevail and where we're all confined and we have some sort of strict sense of how the world works, once you get out of that centrum and into the wilderness, that stuff starts to break down and we have to live by our own codes of honor. So it makes just as much sense as it did, uh, you know, on the, the frontiers of the American West. You mentioned the code of honor, and I think that's a good pivot point into, I'd like to talk a little bit about the lore and myth and sort of a representation of the Mandalorians as a people. Absolutely, let's do it. Um, I'm going to just put myself on blast is that I'm not a content expert on this, and there's so much literature out there about the Mandalorian history and lore. I'd like to forgive the Mandalorian experts of our audience if I commit any errors or any omissions. This is designed to be brief. But the Mandalorians, as I understand them... Are a they come from Mandalore, and I've learned that that's not even technically true. They technically come from Coruscant, but that goes way back in Star Wars lore list. Thousands of years. Yeah, lore history that it's not relevant. They come from Mandalore, they built an empire, they encountered Jedi and, and the Old Republic, and they essentially go to war. The Mandalorian central tenant is that they are a warrior society. Now, there have been periods of Mandalorian lore in which they have uh, fought for pacifism. There have been times where they have fractured for those who want to fo follow the ways of war versus those who want to follow the ways of peace. But for just to keep things simple here, we're going to define the Mandalorians as a warlike people who have a creed of war. And this idea is that you train and you fight, and that is the greatest purpose and, and the greatest good that you can be is a warrior or soldier for Mandalore. Now, they encounter the Jedi, and they instantly go to war with the Jedi. In fact, most of the Mandalorian characteristics physically and militarily that we see were developed to help them get a strategic advantage over the Jedi. They eventually, they do not conquer the Jedi. The Jedi keep the Republic together. And eventually, there is a Mandalorian who becomes a Jedi who forges a dark saber, which is a lightsaber that looks like a katana blade, and it's black, and if you've seen The Mandalorian, you know that the character um, at the end... Moff Gideon. Moff yeah. Gideon, thank you, my brain was blanking, has that actual lightsaber. And then eventually they help the Galactic Empire, they help, pardon me, fight in the uh, Clone Wars with the Galactic Republic, and then join the Galactic Empire, which turns on them and decimates the Mandalorians in the Outer Rim. And this is where we encounter our main character now. The Mandalorians are an underground, fragmented society who can only surface individually because to survive, they must be hidden. 
because they're afraid of being exterminated by this imperial overlords. And that's sort of where the show kind of kicks off. I, when people ask me, I'm going to watch The Mandalorian, Derek. What are The Mandalorians? Is this a show about Boba Fett? One of the things that I like to call The Mandalorians are Spartans in space. Spartans in space. And by Spartans, I mean the ancient warrior Greek society Sparta, or if you're a real historical nerd, the Lacedaemonians. We've talked about ancient Greece many times, and we've talked about Spartans in the past, but I want to take a little bit of a minute on a historical detail. I'm sorry, detour, pardon me. Talk about who the Spartans were and how the Spartans are in certain ways um, represented in the Mandalorian people and culture in the show and in the ways that they're different. Spartans were a militarized ancient Greek society. Now, ancient Greece is not one country, but a series of city-states whose um, fortunes rise and fell and would occasionally align together to fight a common foe. Now, people have been living for a long time in the area that's known as Sparta, But essentially, we start seeing the Spartans develop very early around 700 BCE is when we start seeing the societies that would become the Spartans. They were able to achieve military dominance in an area of ancient Greece known as the Peloponnese, and they pretty much ruled it. They were a harsh slave society. They had an underclass called the Helots, and these were their slaves. They were responsible for making sure their horses were taken care of, building their homes, doing all the manual labor that ancient Spartan society required. These Spartan men had one job and one job only, and that is to train as warriors. Spartan women were educated, and that was the only place in ancient Greece where women were educated. And Spartans were fond of saying that a Spartan woman is superior to any other Greek man. Wow, I didn't know that. Oh, yeah. That's amazing. Yeah, and Spartan women would, when all of the men were out fighting, they would run society. And because it was a massively uh, top-down society where you had a small group of elite warriors and a large amount of slaves, the slaves were constantly uprising, and the Spartans thought this was just fine because that gave them training. Let's put down our slave rebellion. Now, we have a really good idea of how ancient... Spartan society was organized because a copy of the ancient Spartan constitution has survived to date, written by a Greek mercenary historian and how-to writer named Xenophon, and it's called the Constitution of the Lacedaemonians. The people were called the Lacedaemonians, the city was called Sparta, and the people who lived in the city were called Spartans, which is why it's the Constitution of the Lacedaemonian people which I'm probably not saying correctly. There are a few characteristics that demarcate Sparta separately from other ancient Greek city-states in that they had a warrior-style creed where children were indoctrinated into this at a very young age. They were taught to um, groom physically and mentally to prepare themselves, in particular to be infantry. The ancient Spartans despised things like javelins, archers, and slings. These were three ways that people would fight in the ancient world. And it's not that the Spartans wouldn't use them in their battles, 
the Spartan warriors themselves would not lower themselves to those weapons. So if Sparta was going to go to war, it controlled a large territory of the Peloponnese, and there might be another city-state under their sway, and they'd supply the slingers, archers, and javelin throwers, so they would use them, but the Spartans themselves would only be infantry, because that is the only noble or correct way for a Spartan to fight. So, the Spartans were also known for their distinctive bronze war helmets. They wore helmets that anyone in ancient Greece could look and see, there are the Spartans. And when you saw a bunch of those marching to you, you better be like, fuck, the Spartans are coming, and here come the toughest and most badass warriors. They also had a distinctive military formation, eventually got adopted by all of the Greeks because it was so effective, and was the dominant military formation until the rise of the Roman Empire called the Phalanx. Now, if you've seen the movie 300, you've actually seen it described incredibly accurately by the main character Leonidas or Leonidas. And that's where the Spartans would act as one unit. Every man would lock their shields, so the shield was held on your left, the spear on your right. Your shield would half protect you and half protect the man to your left. No single one man in the phalanx was more important than any other, and they would lock in one unit with an impenetrable wall of bronze shields with spears all thrusting simultaneously. It was really difficult for other armies to defeat this phalanx. In fact, it was so powerful that in the Persian Wars, the phalanx formation is one of the reasons when the Persians tried to conquer Greece with overwhelmingly large numbers in two separate wars, it was the Spartans and the Athenians using the phalanx formation, mastering the phalanx formation, that ended up... um, repelling the Persian invaders. All of these things have a few mirrors. One, let's talk about the distinctive helmet. Well, clearly there is a distinctive helmet amongst the Mandalorians. It's the Boba Fett style helmet. Anytime you see that helmet, you know you see a Mandalorian, just like anytime you see the Spartan helmet, you know you have a Spartan. Two, the phalanx is a particular type of formation using shields as armor. The other things that we see with the Mandalorian, what's super important to them, their armor. Also, they indoctrinate children at a young age to a particular type of military creed that says, you yourself are not important. It is the creed that's important. You are expected to lay down your life to the creed and to follow it without question, without mercy, or without hesitation. This is the way. This is the way. We see that also in the Mandalorians. Another fun fact. We think of bounty hunters and mercenaries from a contemporary lens as ignoble professions. What kind of a military man sells their, their military prowess to the highest bidder? You must defend a country. In ancient Greece, if you were at peace and you were a warrior, it was considered common if you needed to earn a living to sell your services to the highest bidder. Being a mercenary was not a bad thing for a warrior of ancient Greece. What do the Mandalorians do? They sell their services to the highest bidder because if you are a warrior without an army or a planet in this case to defend, what are you going to do to earn your way? The only thing you know is killing, so you have to sell these services to the highest bidder. So we see that parallel. 
Now, the ancient Spartans eventually grew to dominate all of Greece after they won a war called the Peloponnesian War, the war between Athens and Sparta, chronicled by the historian Thucydides. And let me tell you, if you're a history buff out there, reading Thucydides, the history of the Peloponnesian War, one of the joys of my life. But anyway, little tangent on the side there. Sparta didn't last for long. It wasn't too long after they won and had the dominant, and they were the dominant power that they lost to Thebes. Thebes became the dominant power till they lost to the Macedonians, in which we see the rise of Philip of Macedon, then Alex of Macedon, e.g. Alex the Great. Alexander the Great. Alexander the Great. Until then, they all became vassals to what? The evil empire, the mighty empire, ancient Rome. What did the Spartans do when the Romans came and made Greece a vassal territory? They said, hey, do you need any help fighting a war? And they're like, well, we got this other place, Carthage, that's a bit of a problem. And they hired the Spartans to help fight and suppress the Carthaginians in the Punic Wars, very similar to how the Galactic uh, Republic, on the verge of becoming the Galactic Empire, Rome at the time was a republic, hires the Mandalorians to come help fight and eventually becomes their overlords. So there's these really fun historical parallels, some which I think are accidental, some that I think are also very intentional, that we can think of the Mandalorians and their creed through a Spartan lens. Now, there's one key, and I can't stress this enough, key difference between the Spartans and the Mandalorians. Ancient Sparta... And being a Spartan was an ethnic um, designation. You were Spartan because you came from the Lacedaemonian, you came from the Peloponnese, you traced your lineage back to Heracles. You are saying that you have the blood of a Greek demigod running through your veins. You, not anyone can just claim to be a Spartan. You can't just take up the Spartan creed and be a Spartan. You may have heard, if you've seen the movie 300, that the Spartans would discard babies that they thought looked sickly or mutated or weird. That's 100% true. They would try to breed the perfect soldiers by killing babies they thought were not fit. Whereas the Mandalorians, anyone can be a Mandalorian. All you have to do is pick up the creed. A Mandalorian is not a people, it's a way of life. And that is the key demarcation between the ancient Spartans and the Mandalorians. And a key uh, thematic note for this show to end on and something that I think it is taking into the broader Star Wars universe. This idea of choice uh, and this idea of community and family as defined by who you surround yourself with, not necessarily who you are born to. Um, there is... Uh, you know, at least my understanding of Mandalorian history and lore is that this was a people that began as a species, the Tong, uh, and all Mandalorians were of this species for a long time. And then when that became unsustainable and they needed to grow their numbers, they opened it up and mostly humans became Mandalorians, but many, many other races and species were incorporated into this creed. Uh, and that creates this uh, very pluralistic but choice-driven society and community where the people who are part of it are part of it because they believe in it with their full hearts and full blood. Um, 
the one of the things that you mentioned in there was about how um, the mercenary or the bounty hunting trade was uh, natural for both of these societies to go into when there wasn't a war to be fought. And the other aspect of that for the Mandalorians, at least, I don't know if it's the same for Sparta, is that uh, war and combat and conquest and fighting are uh, are religious experiences to them. It's it's a divine um, it's a divine path to follow to continue fighting a war. So even if uh, you know that's your only skill, that's not why you become a bounty hunter. That's not why you become a mercenary. You become a mercenary because to put yourself to anything else, to farming, to ranching, to uh, becoming a nursing uh, person would would not be fulfilling that divine will, which is part of the sort of religious cohesion that keeps the Mandalorians together. Yeah, ancient Sparta is a very fiercely pagan religious society. Yeah. They are very devout in their gods, of which they kept Heracles and Ares, and then individuals would have their own, and individual families and clans would have their own um, gods that they would keep. And they're also a clan-driven society, so people would group into smaller units within the Spartans and that they're part of these clans with familial bonds and ties that were linked religiously. Um, if it were against uh, Spartan religious principle to do a thing, a Spartan in theory would rather and should rather die than do the thing. It's important to note that the Spartans of myth of being, and they were fierce warriors, the, the Spartans of myth versus the Spartans of reality, there's a, uh, a conflict there. There are documented cases of Spartans surrendering on the battlefield, which they're supposed to fight, quote, tooth and nail, which is a term coined by the historian Herodotus to describe the Battle of Thermopylae. When the Spartans' weapons gave out, they fought tooth and nail, meaning they started clawing and biting at the Persians. The Spartans are supposed to rather die than surrender, never retreat, and sometimes they did. In certain ways, we see this echoed in a weird way in Mandalorian. He's supposed to be the fiercest warrior, but we see him get his ass kicked all, a lot. Yeah. We see him lose fights some t- in some episodes more than he wins them. But he's supposed to be the toughest warrior out there, yet encounters tougher warriors all the time. So just because you're part of this creed doesn't mean you always live up to it. Just because you're part of this legend doesn't mean that you really are the greatest fighters out there. The Spartans were never supposed to surrender. That was supposed to be a fate worse than death. Yet there are documented cases of Spartans surrendering to save their own lives rather than fighting. And I think one of the interesting things about the Mandalorian, in particular in the finale, is if we look at IG-11 versus the Mandalorian as mirrors and shadows of each other, And we see how it is the programming that drives IG-11 to do what IG-11 does. In fact, IG-11 has no free will or choice. IG-11 constantly is telling everyone, I'm not actually alive. I can't choose to do things. And yet we see incredible heroics and self-sacrifice from this character. But it represents a transformation from killer to carer. Right? And then... We are seeing that happening also in The Mandalorian as just a killer now to a caregiver. Now choosing, but with Mandalorian, it must be a choice. And when Mandalorian gets clan bonded 
to Baby Yoda, we're now seeing a different character going forward. I feel like all of the eight episodes are to get the Mandalorian to the threshold of getting the sigil and getting the mission. And that mission is to be a father. Yeah. This character goes from foundling to father. I want to talk a little bit about the signet um, because I think there are some interesting symbols that are tied to it. Of course, um, Mando, uh, whose, whose true name is revealed as Din Djarin, and Baby Yoda become a clan of two and receive their signet, which is the Mudhorn that they defeated uh, early on in the season. Uh, and that is a creature that looks very similar to a rhinoceros, and it was protecting an egg that they were capturing for Jawas because mudhorn eggs are apparently a great delicacy to the Jawas. Um, very interesting scene when they break that egg open. I don't really want to think about it. But uh, so the the mudhorn and the rhinoceros imagery, I think, pings a couple of uh, symbolic things for me, particularly the unicorn. So unicorn mythology, this is a creature that's gone back throughout multiple cultures, but there are some um, some pieces of folklore that suggest that people were seeing rhinoceroses and that the sort of whisper down the lane was creating this mythical beast of the unicorn. So they are very much tied. Um, and the unicorn has a lengthy symbolic uh, tradition, which usually has it representing wildness, representing wilderness, representing freedom and independence, purity, innocence, all of these things wrapped up in one. But it's very importantly the national symbol of the country of Scotland. Um, the reason that they selected the unicorn as their national symbol was because England had recently chosen the lion as its national symbol, and the unicorn is the fabled enemy of the lion. So there was a deep anti-imperial sentiment going on with choosing a unicorn as their symbol. This sense of fierce independence from this other uh, entity that it will later become wrapped up in, uh, in this empire. And the Mandalorian is very much an anti-imperial figure who is trying to hold on to this cultural identity, is trying to hold on to this individual identity, while coming up against uh, imperial remnant enemies who are, especially Moff Gideon, uh, symbolic of trying to destroy that identity, destroy and tear apart families. Um, so I think that's uh, extremely valuable. Uh, the unicorn was seen as a creature that would rather die than be captured. And I think we see that in Din Djarin, uh, asking them to leave him behind so that he can die, just so that the child can be safe. And we see that in IG-11, saying, I cannot be captured. I will self-destruct. Uh, there is this identification with the unicorn spirit that I think is also in the spirit of the Western, the wild and the independent. I absolutely love that. And to me, one of the interesting things about putting narratives within the thematic and mythological wheelhouse of Star Wars, but not linked to the broader Star Wars, or pardon me, Skywalker saga as we know it, that gets to ask some interesting and pertinent questions. One thematic thing they started interjecting into the Mandalorian in part that I hope they get to expand on, whether in Mandalorian or other, you know, Disney Plus or Disney movies or in the Star Wars universe is, 
the actual real cost and toll of these wars. It gets teased a little bit in The Last Jedi in which we see slaves and we see the decadence of Cantubite and we get to see the cost of the rebellion and what that does to a family unit a lot in Rogue One and especially the character Cassian who becomes an assassin for the um, for the rebellion. But this one really couched things in like, hey, this empire ruined lives. There are people that have to live in the underground. There are people that can't travel and move freely. There are orphans that are caused from these destructive conflicts and that there's a real human cost to it. And if you have a empire collapsing and you have these fragments and pockets of power, it makes sense that would-be warlords are going to prop up, claim the empire as their own, and rule these outskirts far away from the center of the um, you know actual empire or the now the new republic with an iron fist. After all, look at fucking Dark Age Europe after the collapse of Rome. There are just a bunch of you know, military warlords that propped up and said, this is mine, this is mine, and fought with each other. And we're seeing that play out here in the Outer Rim. And I really want, and I really hope they're going to expand on that, that human toll of the empire, what, what it means when it collapses, the actual cost of what it means to real life people that have to live in this galaxy and find a way to get around and find a way to like earn a living and be like, hey, you know, we were once a proud military race. We're just going to live in the sewers now. Yeah, right. Well, yeah, there's such a stark contrast between uh, the core of characters who are actually facing off against an evil empire or rebuilding a new republic and those who live on the outskirts. You know, we learn in this final episode of The Mandalorian that there are people who don't know what the Jedi are, even though uh, the Republic or the um, the Empire has just been brought down by a Jedi. And a Jedi's return. Yeah. Uh, and so there is this, like, a lack of communication between uh, between parts of the galaxy, and there are, are places where... Um, where what we think of as the grand sagas don't even reach. And one of the the biggest um, signifiers of that is that, you know, the Skywalker saga is, for the most part, about orphans discovering their grand destiny and discovering their imperial parentage. Whereas if you're Din Djarin, if you are an orphan on the outskirts of that, you're just an orphan. You don't necessarily have a grand destiny ascribed to you, but you can make one for yourself, or you can make a destiny that sees you become a good person, that sees you do good for someone else, that sees you caring for someone more vulnerable than you. Uh, and I think that is tremendous as far as expanding what Star Wars is capable of. It's, uh, it's here to tell us that we all have the potential uh, to be great, even if we haven't been ascribed a great destiny. Yeah, it's a big galaxy, and I w want to see more things like The Mandalorian. Any final thoughts? Um, I uh, have enjoyed having this conversation. I love Star Wars so much. So do you, Derek. Uh, and I think uh, this was an exciting way to talk about it from a different lens. I, just like you, am hopeful to see so much more from The Mandalorian um, and to learn more about these characters and their weapons and their lore and all of it. 
Uh, I just can't wait. Well, grab your dark saber, and until next time, be kind. This is the way. 